The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now, last uh, time we were involved in rounding off our uh, this, the section that we've been in since the beginning of uh, uh, the semester under the heading of eschatology and ethics, working at the eschatological structure from a number of different angles, and we were drawing some concluding observations, or points put under that heading. Uh, the point, the fourth point I think I had just been making, and that is uh, to, to stress that the, uh, the historical vagueness, if you will, of the document, uh, so far vagueness as we uh, might think of it in terms of the uh, uh, conventional introductory questions as to the exact circumstances of the readership, um, the, the author, um, identity, and so on, uh, that vagueness is not a matter of historical indifference. And I was simply accenting again the, uh, uh, that, the, that the writer is not wanting his readers to turn away from history, but to appreciate the, the fundamental historical qualification of their existence as they exist between the times. Um, and that uh, that then is the most important thing uh, for them to appreciate, their lives bracketed by the resurrection and the return of Christ as they are seeking to make sense out of what is happening to them uh, in the particular um, um, experiences, no doubt experiences of persecution that um, life in the first century Mediterranean world um, is, is resulting in for them. So as we put it right at the end, um, uh, the perennial lesson here, if you will, for the church is that uh, in the final analysis, the long-range point of view is the best solution to the immediate problem. Uh, any comments, questions on that before we move on? Yes, go ahead, Bruce. I am appreciating very much the perspective you're talking about here about uh, history, especially as this confronts uh, the ahistoricism you were talking about that looks at Philo and looks at Gnosticism and, and tends to find some source there, but in reality it's far more historically oriented. But at the same time, it seems to me that the answer that Hebrews is giving in this typology, uh, thing that you were pointing out, uh, the old and the new, uh, until Christ is in heaven, his triumph is removed from us. And, and even Christ's triumph is not dealt with in Hebrews in a historical way. It's dealt with in a theological way. And I'm uh, wondering if you'll talk about that a little bit more. The, the history... And my difficulty here is, is not that we need more history about the people to whom the book was written, but uh, wouldn't some more history about Jesus himself uh, anchor this better in the way that you're talking about it here? How does the, the, the biblical perspective uh, point to history as it touches us? 
Um, now, are, are you thinking that uh, it would have? You're wondering why the writer doesn't go more into the details of Jesus' historical uh, his ministry on earth. Maybe it's more like this: instead of there being a historicism, I agree with your criticism of that there is not. But it does seem like the answer of the Book of Hebrews is the establishing or pointing to a supra-historicism. It's some sort of otherworldly perspective that helps deal with life. You mean the Christ in the heavenly sanctuary? Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. That yeah, I think that um, there, there's no question um, yeah, I guess, guess the nub of the answer that I would want to develop an, an accent in responding to that is that the heaven if you will, is a redemptive historical heaven. It's a heaven that has been entered by the, um, by the heavenly high priest um, and, um, and, 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 and is the fruit of his work in history. Uh, now it is, see, and in that respect, I don't think it's, 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 it's essentially the same perspective that Paul would have in uh, Ephesians 2, Colossians uh, 2 and 3, um, you have been raised with Christ, you're seated with Christ in heaven. In a sense, the, the, the writer of Hebrews explicates that, that vertical dimension. Um, so in a sense, uh, yeah, we are, um, we are turned to a, to a supra-historical um, anchor point, and yet that is not so much divorced from history, but uh, uh, rooted in what has taken place in history. Um, anticipating what I'll touch on uh, briefly, let me just say it here. You see, what the writer is operating with all told, uh, and I need to bring this point out when we start talking more explicitly about, about the, um, the, um, the, the high priestly ministry of Christ, is, as Voss puts it, kind of a ritual geography which is based on Leviticus 16 and the liturgy, if you will, of the Day of Atonement. Um, so that, um, remember what happens on the Day of Atonement, the, 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 the animal sacrifice takes place outside of, uh, in the temple precincts, and then the blood is carried into the most holy place and sprinkle there on the, on the mercy seat, the, the propitiation uh, place. And um, so you see the writer, so, so there, if you will, there's, there's an integrity, if you will, or a wholeness to that situation, that the sacrifice slain and then taken into the holy place. Now what the writer does is transpose that typology or, or is, is working with that typology of the Day of Atonement and saying that, uh, if you will, on earth is the outside precinct area where the sacrifice is, is um, where the blood is actually shed, and then the blood, now with, and here's the unique development, the blood is carried by the sacrifice himself into the inner sanctuary. So that, uh, what I, I'm just bringing that here in response to your question because you see, even you see, heaven and earth are not so much pulled apart, of, pulled apart as they are part of a total reality. 
So that even, you see, if you will, redemptive historically, we have to, we have to bring heaven into our historical purview. Um, but there is no question, um, having said that, um, that, that the writer um, directs us um, to heaven. Uh, as you say, it, it, it's super-historical, and yet it, it in no way breaks down the history. <clears throat> yes? Um, I wouldn't want to say the semantic domains are exactly the same, but I think there's a large area of overlap. Um, yeah, well, you're, I'm, I'm waiting to see what you come up with in your paper. <laughs> um, the, um, no, I'm, I'm sure there's different... I, I, this is, this is a kind of lame way of responding, and it, it, it needs to be you know, worked out. But I would say the differences are differences of accent. Um, that, uh, that the faith, that, that there is not, so far as I can see, a, uh, a substantially different understanding of pistuo in Hebrews than there is for uh, you know, Paul, say, say, in Romans. Um, see, I think where you get into that from the Paul point of view, uh, that all contemporary Pauline scholarship recognizes it has to wrestle with more and more, and you get all kinds of different answers, but really has never been uh, factored very well into, into more traditional um, um, exegesis and particularly a systematic theology, and that is the whole relationship in Paul between justification and final judgment. You see, the, 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 uh, a, 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 a pointedly developed Protestant doctrine of justification by faith often finds itself in the position of really being left kind of witless when Paul says, will, Romans 2.6, render uh, to everyone according to his works that um, there is for Paul, you see, uh, now, now I'm, uh, I'm coming to the end of this discussion, there is in Paul a future justification. Uh, the already not yet structure uh, applies to, there's the truth of Romans 5.1, already justified, since we're already justified by faith, but there's also the future dimension of, of, of a justification that is still future. And it's not, I would want to argue, of an essentially different principle. It's not as if we have been justified by faith and we will be justified now by works that are somehow um, divorced from faith or somehow in addition to faith. But the principle for Paul is Galatians 5, 6, that justifying faith is a faith that works by love. And see, there, I think, particularly, you get that persevering dimension in. In, in, into the picture. 
um, that uh, we were accenting in the book of Hebrews. Well, something to think about. In the fifth place, um, I want to take just a few minutes, um, this seems like a good place to do it, to uh, address uh, what we could say the eschatology of Hebrews and the question of the millennium. The Hebrews and the millennium. Now, at a first glance, it might seem that there is nothing explicit that uh, the writer has to say on the uh, classical um, eschatological discussions that, as they have taken place. And in fact, as you look into those discussions, you see that Hebrews is, um, is, is largely um, ignored. It is, however, a document which I think anyone would have to recognize. It's a, it's a document in which hope is a central category, um, in which, in other words, the blessed hope of the church uh, is quite central. And so we should expect, we have to be careful, of course, always in, in, in the inferences that we, we draw, but we should expect that what Hebrews would have to say would, uh, uh, with, it, with its pronounced eschatological emphasis, as we've um, labored over some weeks now to develop, it, would have something uh, to say. So I, I want to try to bring out what appears to me to be implications of... Uh, uh, implications of the eschatological structure of Hebrews for uh, the conventional uh, eschatological, traditional, uh, at least Protestant eschatological um, discussions, evangelical um, debate about the millennium. Now, I want to say then a uh, series of, of, of three subpoints here. Uh, for one thing, the writer's eschatology particularly his, his realized eschatology, leaves no room for a premillennial position. The writer is not a premill. Uh, in support of that, um, these uh, considerations. The writer tells us that Jesus has gone through the heavens... 414, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, bringing together the language of 414 and 81. Now, once that has happened, you see, from the vantage point of the writer, it seems to me we're bound to say this. Once this is true, that Jesus has gone through the heavens, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, his return for a provisional earthly rule, as the premillennial position would have it, his return for provisional earthly rule prior to an eternal heavenly order, that would be a step backward for the writer, an eschatological retreat, if you will. That would be retrogressive for the writer. to envision Christ returning, as we put it, for provisional earthly rule prior to an eternal heavenly order. You see, certainly, if anything, 
for the writer, the return of Christ means the return of the heavenly high priests. Of the heavenly high priests, singular. That means the return of Christ, uh, Christ will return in that identity as the heavenly high priest. His return will not be uh, the appearance of Christ, as we would have, to, I think, to say it on a pre premillennial construction. The return of Christ will not be his appearance, temporarily exchanging heavenly ministry for earthly duties. Rather, the return of Christ will mean the appearance on earth of the heavenly order, the heavenly sanctuary, where we are told, you see, 620, Christ is a high priest forever. Christ is now high priest forever in the heavenly sanctuary. So that his return will mean the appearance, the manifestation on earth of that heavenly order sanctuary. To put it in other terms, that was the language of, of 620, Christ is the high priest forever. The return of Christ for the writer uh, will mean the manifestation on earth of the heavenly Jerusalem. 1222. Of the lasting city. 1314, of, as we've spent considerable time looking at it, it will be the appearance now on earth, the realization now on earth of the eternal rest order, the eschatological rest order, 411. And notice all this... Uh, the writer gives every indication of, and no, certainly no indication against, all this is to happen without delay at the return of Christ. The return of Christ, in a nutshell, what we're saying here, according to the writer, will be the manifestation of uh, a Christ and along with, uh, of the heavenly Christ and along with that of the heavenly order on earth without delay. So the writer of Hebrews is not a pre-mill. Nor, secondly, is the writer a post-mill. It seems to me that the, uh, the, the, uh, the line of argumentation in the document is no less indisposed toward a post-millennial outlook. I say that for these considerations. The writer teaches that until Christ returns, until Christ returns, the church remains a wilderness congregation. It remains a pilgrim people, a people on the way. And that is the essential identity of the church Remember, we gave considerable time to, to, to exploring this wilderness identity. Uh, the church retains that wilderness uh, congregation character 
until Christ returns. Until Christ returns, uh, to use the language of 11.13, and this is surely his point there, uh, the church is like the patriarchs in the land of promise. They are, as believers, they are aliens and strangers on earth. Aliens and strangers on earth. And you see, it's just that tension, that tension, aliens in the land of promise. That is an essential dimension of their identity. Uh, to put it in, 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 in more in the categories of fulfillment, until Christ returns, the church is a company of aliens in a creation order that is theirs by right, whose eschatological restoration has already been secured for them by their high priest king. They are already entire, entitled to the entire creation as their possession because of what Christ has done, and yet they remain aliens. More pointedly, uh, in terms of the categories of, of the discussion, the writer of Hebrews teaches us, so far as I can see, that there is no golden age coming for the church, no so-called golden age in store for the church before Christ returns uh, that will re somehow replace these desert conditions, will even ameliorate these conditions of testing and suffering. No success of the gospel, however great, is going to bring the church into a position of earthly prosperity and dominion as that would be understood then as a situation such that the wilderness with its persecutions and temptations will be eliminated or even marginalized. And you see, that's, if you're going to take as a post-millennial position does Isaiah 65, 17 and following and apply it to some era still in the future but yet before the return of Christ, um, that is, is, that's how you're going to ha have to understand, uh, you're going to have to understand some situation of prosperity uh, that will have uh, at the least marginalized or perhaps even eliminated the wilderness conditions, which is precisely what the, um, uh, the writer does, uh, I think, not only does not teach, but teaches against. The prosperity and blessing of the church in view in a passage like this, at least so far as its future dimension is concerned still, that is what is reserved until Christ returns. Perhaps after all that has been uh, said, I could uh, try to encapsulate things this way. The writer of Hebrews operates, after all, with a rather, at least structurally, a, a simple eschatological profile. We can perhaps look at it this way. If, if we think of Christ 
and the church. Um, the bodily absence of Christ, the bodily absence of Christ means the church's wilderness existence. The bodily presence of Christ, that is his return, that means rest for the church. So in a sense, I think you can encapsulate everything in, 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 a, in, a, in a structure like that. The, the bodily absence of Christ, now at the right hand of God, what that entails then is wilderness existence for the church. And that wilderness existence continues as long as Christ is absent. The presence, the bodily presence, the return of Christ brings the rest, which is the antithesis to the wilderness situation for the church. So you can you could say that, uh, remember we talked uh, uh, Voss uh, talks about the, uh, acute es the acute eschatologism of, his, uh, of the readership. Um, another way of putting that is that uh, we, we can say in the church there is always a, a certain eschatological impatience. And in a sense, that's good. Um, uh, we are taught to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus as the, the Westminster Confession ends on that note. Um, and yet, um, the church always has to be in gu on guard that uh, um, it does not uh, distort its, its eschatological longing into a kind of impatience uh, that wants to, uh, uh, to run ahead of uh, the Lord's purposes and plans. Uh, that wants to, in other terms, in the terms of the book of Hebrews, wants to get out of the wilderness uh, before the Lord uh, is pleased to deliver us from the wilderness at Christ's return. Yes? You made no reference to uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 28, uh, return a second time. Yes. Not for sin, but for salvation. Right. Why do you not? Is there something in that verse no, no, I should have, um, I mean, that, that is the presupposition that Christ will return. I, it's just that 928 would go into the mix with all these other passages. Um, it's, um, I think what that announces is that Christ, the fact that Christ will return. Now, what is concomitant, how you're to understand that return in, in what I've been doing here, in effect, is, is bringing these other, other scriptures into what does the writer see as, as happening or not happening. You see, it's at this point uh, you know, that, the, that the heavenly Jerusalem will come down to earth, that, the, that, that heaven, we now experience, a, you know, this in a sense bears on the question you asked earlier. Now, now we experience a, a separation between heaven and earth. Um, the, the eschatological rest state, in a sense, is uh, from one angle can be seen as the uh, as the elimination of that of that separation. Heaven and earth come together. It's a new heavens and new earth.
All right, if there's no further questions, uh, we can move on now from these concluding observations. And that brings us to uh, a rather decisive transition point in our work as a whole. We've been spending the time through the, uh, all of our time up to this point in the semester discussing matters under the heading of eschatology and ethics. And if you have your outline sheet at hand, uh, you can see that uh, what we want to do now is move on to what would be our second main topic, Roman numeral two, uh, the heavenly priestly ministry of Jesus, the heavenly high priestly ministry of Jesus. And uh, this will occupy our time uh, for the rest uh, of the semester working under this theme. Uh, there's a number of bibliographical items that could be cited here, but before... Uh, I move ahead into, as you notice, uh, sub-point A, some preliminary points. Let me just draw your attention to a couple of uh, items of bibliography, uh, looking at more recent uh, things particularly. Uh, a very excellent monograph by Professor Murray, John Murray, that you'll find printed now in volume one of his collected writings on, that, uh, on the theme of the heavenly high priestly ministry of, of Christ not just addressed to the material in Hebrews, he, he explores it across the New Testament, but uh, by the nature of the case uh, gives considerable attention to uh, Hebrews. Then in the materials I've asked you to read in Voss chapters uh, 4 and 5 in his book on the teaching of Hebrews, particularly important, and you'll find um, a couple of articles uh, related to that in the Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation by Voss. Also, if you're able to, ever able to come across it, get your hand on it, it's, it's, it'd be a rather rare item now, is a volume, uh, actually it was a doctoral dissertation done under Voss. Um, no, that's not right. I, let me correct that. It was uh, uh, done as a doctoral dissertation as, at the Free University, but um, stimulated by uh, Voss, and that's the work by H.H. H. Meter, M-E-E-T-E-R, uh, the high priestly, heavenly high priestly, the heavenly high priesthood of Christ, that um, he was a student, Meter was a student of Voss at Princeton, then went on to the free where he did this work, and it's uh, a very excellent piece of work building on Voss. Now, uh, before we uh, proceed uh, into examining several themes, I want to uh, begin with a series of preliminary points, as I've indicated there, section A. And uh, as a first point, let me, uh, I'll do this to, to sort of uh, set a tone for our work as a whole. Uh, it's a distinct overtone in Hebrews that now that God has spoken in his Son, things are better, better. Uh, Chrason. It's the comparative of the um, adjective agathos for good, um, translated better. That adjective occurs uh, 19 times in the whole New Testament, but of those 19 occurrences, 13 are found in the book of Hebrews. So at least comparatively within the New Testament, you can see that uh, it, it, that's, that's an, a weighted accent in Hebrews. And let me just, uh, without spending a lot of time uh, going into any one particular passage, just bring together for us here uh, the various references 
uh, and usages, occurrences of this adjective uh, better. Uh, the controlling notion is that the new covenant is a better covenant, a better covenant, 722.86. And it's better, of course, over against in contrast with the first, in effect, old covenant. So that being the case, that, that contrast that brings out the new covenant as a better covenant, uh, that as a better covenant, it involves a better hope, 719, better promises, chapter 8, verse 6, better sacrifices, 923. Uh, let me just uh, comment there in passing. You might wonder about the plural, why better sacrifices, when the writer accents that it was just the one once-for-all sacrifice of Christ um, in its singular uniqueness that did away uh, with all of the sacrifices, plural, of the old. And um, this is an example of what's often referred to as a generic plural uh, to bring out uh, the class by itself in contrast, uh, even though uh, he is quite clear that there was only one sacrifice that was was offered just in that context that once for all and this comes out verses 25 26 and 28 uh, further uh, it's the new covenant is a matter of a better possession or property 1034 a better homeland 1116 a better resurrection 1135 an interesting way of uh, of looking at things speaking of a better resurrection and in the contrast there uh, is likely with what he has had to say earlier in the chapter about um, the resurrection faith of of, uh, of of Abraham. All told, 1140, it's a matter of a better provision. A better provision, literally a better something, uh, the writer says. Kraton T. Uh, and then chapter 1224, uh, the statement that the blood of the mediator of the new covenant speaks better speaks better than that the blood of Abel. Now, um, especially if we were to ask in, in terms of general considerations what constitutes uh, the betterness or the superiority of, of the New Covenant, the statements in 10.34 and 11.16 are helpful to, uh, to give uh, uh, in, a, in a still general but... Um, and yet a pointed way uh, what makes up this the better quality of the new covenant uh, 1034 it's a matter of what is menon or abiding what uh, does not pass away and is not provisional uh, that that uh, reminds us immediately of the statement in chapter 1314 uh, that the hope the new covenant hope or what's provided by the new covenant is in a, a menusopolis, an abiding or remaining city. Uh, and again, looking at 1116, um, we're told that the new covenant brings that which is heavenly, epuranion, a heavenly homeland. So that uh, what we're wanting to get at here then is that the betterness of the new the new covenant is better because it brings what is abiding and what is heavenly, and we can say uh, all in all the betterness of the new covenant is uh, that it brings the reality in contrast with what was nothing 
beyond type or shadow. So it's in this context, what is better about the New Covenant, that the writer goes on to give uh, a particularly central and, and dominant place uh, to the high priestly work of Christ. That is, becomes his main point, as he says, 8.1. So with that first preliminary point, let me go on and make now um, three uh, further preliminary points. Uh, and these all bear, uh, in one way or another, on this topic of, of, of Christ as high priest. Uh, so a second preliminary point uh, is to raise this question, as it has been uh, posed by others. Hebrews refers to Christ uh, not simply as priest, but also as high priest. Both terms are used, archiarus and the simple hierus high priest and priest. Uh, the question then that has been asked uh, is this. Are these two ter terms used indiscriminately without any difference? Uh, Voss, in picking up on that question, you may recall from your reading, he says, no, uh, they're not used indiscriminately, that when the writer uses refers to Jesus as high priest, a comparison is expressed or implied uh, particularly with Aaron, with the person of Aaron as high priest. Whereas, Voss continues that when Christ is called simply priest, the comparison is with uh, the Levitical order as a whole. Um, as, as far as I can see, I don't think you can cut things quite that sharply. I don't think that holds up uh, at every point, uh, particularly if you read uh, chapter 8, 3, and 4. Let me take just a moment to, um, to do that. 8, 3, and 4. The writer says, 8, 3, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary uh, that this one, that is Christ, have something to offer. Then the writer continues uh, with this interesting statement that we'll uh, comment on, on in in other respects uh, in, in a later context. He says, If therefore he were still on earth, he would not be a priest. Not a high priest, but a priest. So this seems to be one place where uh, high priest and priest are used interchangeably. Um, at any rate, however uh, you want to argue that, the distinction, and, and certainly uh, Voss would... would uh, would be wanting to uh, affirm this as well. The distinction can't be a hard and fast one. Uh, in 711 particularly, uh, we can say that in light of 711, uh, in 711 the Levitical priesthood is said to be the order, the toxis of Aaron. Uh, so that Aaron is a key figure and as high priest can represent the entire uh, priestly order. So, um, We'll leave that issue with uh, those observations. Now going on, and this would be our third uh, preliminary point, give a little bit more attention here. Uh, it's a striking fact, It's at least if you've never uh, had it pointed out to you before, appreciated it, that, and that's this, that Hebrews is the only New Testament book to call Christ a priest or a high priest. It's the only uh, New Testament document that uses that vocabulary, that uh, that terminology, that's, that's part of the profile of, of New Testament revelation, that this is, is distinct um, usage to Hebrews. Uh, however, and we need to be careful here uh, and, and not fall into 
the error that um, some have uh, of trying then to set Hebrews in opposition to the rest of the New Testament on this point. Because certainly while the vocabulary may be unique to Hebrews, uh, that does not mean that the idea, the idea, the concept of Jesus as high priest is foreign to the rest of the New Testament. And um, uh, in, in other words, the aspects, the crucial uh, elements that belong to the high priestly work of Christ are very clearly taught elsewhere in the New Testament. And uh, what I want to do then, uh, this diverges uh, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, certainly uh, takes us away from what was, it would strictly uh, necessary, be necessary for our exposition of Hebrews, but uh, since this is a, a rather important issue, I, I want to take just a few moments to uh, quickly survey the rest of the New Testament, see how the, the concept of, 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 of Jesus as, as priest permeates uh, entirety. And we can do that uh, providing kind of a par- using as a paradigm the elements, as the writer of Hebrews will teach, of, of self-sacrifice and intercession as being essential to a high priest. Uh, so we'll go through the New Testament looking at it uh, from those two angles, um, the angle of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, and that of intercession. And the first thing uh, that we can... Um, First of all, let's look at the Gospels as a unit, uh, looking at the synoptic tradition, and uh, first of all, the element of sacrifice uh, is clearly there in a passage, say, like Matthew 20, 28, and its parallels, uh, where Jesus says that he came to give, or the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many, lutron antipolon. Uh, that is is clearly uh, gets us into the into the in, into sacral uh, the area of sacral ideas even more explicitly is what we find a little bit later uh, in twenty six twenty eight of Matthew the occasion is the uh, Jesus eating Passover and he talks there about uh, the blood my blood of the covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So clearly, uh, Jesus expressing his, his own impending death as a priestly sacrificial act. Uh, we have in John's Gospel on this matter of sacrifice the, the uh, well-known pronouncement that's there in 129, Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the, the, the sacrificial background is, is clear enough there. Later in chapter 10, verses 11 uh, and 15, um, Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. These materials then, and there's others we could uh, draw attention to, but these are probably the prominent synoptic statements. They all point to Christ's sacrifice of himself. And that, uh, we'll see, is a central element in the high priestly work uh, in Hebrews. But now, uh, looking at the gospel materials, what about the element of intercession linked by the writer with um, sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews? That is particularly prominent in John 17. It, you see, it's, it's with good reason uh, that even though the vocabulary of, uh, of, of priest isn't explicit there, uh, the church with good instinct has referred to that chapter as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, further, the office of the Holy Spirit 
um, as Parakletos um, in chapters 14 through 16 of John. Uh, the, high, the Holy Spirit, when he will come, in other words, as advocate or intercessor, uh, as the Holy Spirit will be that on earth in believers, that is the counterpart uh, that context is wanting to bring out uh, to the ministry of Christ in heaven. And 1 John 2, 1, we'll note later on, we can just comment here, uh, refers to Christ as the parakletos, the advocate that believers have with the Father. There's also the fact along this line of intercession that Christ applies to himself in Matthew 14.62, excuse me, uh, in a passage like Mark 14.62 and again in Acts 2.34 and 35, Peter there on the day of uh, Pentecost making a similar use uh, both passages of Psalm 110, um, uh, which uh, refers to um, Christ as a high priest in heaven, Christ applying that to himself. So that uh, those indications of these fundamental dimensions of, of priestly activity in the gospel material, uh, we can move on to Paul, uh, where in a passage like Ephesians 5.2, uh, Christ he says that Christ gave himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. Very strong emphasis uh, on priestly language. Well, uh, let's take a break at this point and we can pick up.